Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I mentioned uh, a while back that I wanted to try and respond to some of the great questions that people send me. I wish I could respond to all of them, but, you know, only so much time. But here I wanted to give a little more content for people. And so I thought I would answer one question that I received recently about the difference between a middle class and a bourgeoisie. But before that, some bonus material. I'm putting a link below to a show I did, well, it's two weeks ago. Seems like two years ago, of course, now, on the other side of the Great Divide. Um, with of North Indian classical music with Srivani Jade and Ravi Albright on tabla and Srivani Jade singing and playing the tambura um, as an introduction to and, and sort of open people's minds to the North Indian raga tradition. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I think if you have a little time and you want to do some exploring of music, which I always recommend, uh, I, I think you might enjoy the show a lot. And Srivani is, is a remarkable singer. What a beautiful uh, voice and great control. And Ravi's amazing tabla player. And it was just a show designed to introduce people, get them in touch with the tradition, and, and encourage them to explore artists like Ustad Ali Akbar Khan and uh, Nikhil Banerjee. So I'll put a link below. I think you might enjoy that, and it'll give you some music to think about and maybe explore here. All right, so... Um, Middle class versus bourgeoisie. Now, if you if you look this up online, what you'll see is, you know, standard definitions of bourgeoisie, and then you'll find some scholars who say, oh, there never was such a thing as bourgeoisie. Well, this is, I mean, this is sort of nonsense. It's a, um, you know, the, the, if you can define something so narrow and so fine, yes, you can define it a certain way and decide that, yes, that never existed. Okay, fine. But generally speaking, there really was, and it's an important category of people that developed and it's easy to see what this was. Bourgeoisie just really means someone who lives in a city. Um, it's the same root as burger. Um, so, that, you know, it's the same, same general concept. Why this is important um, is because if you, you know, think about, oh, go back to, say, the collapse of the Roman Empire, you know, 450 or whatever, say 500 AD. When the Roman Empire collapsed, Rome, Rome was able to sustain its amazing population, particularly given the time period, because it had these vast trading routes, <clears throat> mostly water. <clears throat> Excuse me, not all on water, but most of it over water. And so that sea trade, bringing grain in from North Africa, Carthage, etc., really allowed Rome to flourish. When the Roman Empire collapses, also those sea routes, that, that sea empire collapses, and so the interest of or just the power base shifts inland over the next several hundred years so that by the time you start, say, at 1,000, when you start getting the roots of the Carthaginian empires, you know, all these other uh, political forces start to sort of coagulate all over um, Europe, um, it's, it's mostly, not again exclusively, mostly a land-based power system, money, wealth, population are derived by how much territory you control and, of course, how much of that territory you can farm on. And so cities really take on a whole different environment and sensibility in that case. And the primary notion is you're important to the extent that you control or own land. So if you're a duke and you have a lot of land, you're really important. If you're a duke and you don't have much land, now the title is nice and very important and valuable, but basically you're probably not as important just because you have less of this material good that everything else is derived from. So even if you, as late as someone like a philosopher like Montaigne, I mean, this is where he comes from. I mean, he's the landed gentry, you know, that's what the phrase means. 
And so as you move through feudalism and get to come out of that, right, how many knights can you support? Well, it's all about horses. It's all about um, having various serfs who feed you and you have the the wood that you need to create buildings and raise these whole sort of semi-autonomous, not entirely, of course, but moderately autonomous, self-sustaining geographic regions that begin to be glued together. And, and as technology changes, technology advances, then these become bigger and bigger. In that process, of course, cities become increasingly important. Things like the Hanseatic League eventually show up. You have the Venetian ports always there and important. You have the Dutch, you know, trading ports begin to, to flourish. And as you move into the Renaissance and beyond, the, the cities become increasingly important. Trade is going again. As you get larger geographical regions you're trying to deal with, well, you need larger administration, which means now you need some educated people who can write some things. Uh, trade, be, you know, trade, of course, always important, both inland and overseas. Technology is advancing. And slowly, um, the cities and the people who occupy the cities become more and more important. And you need the resources that they provide, which is not just the resources you get from trade, but it's also the knowledge base, it's the schools, it's the trades, uh, it's the specialties for doing things like making eyeglasses, working gold, making glass, uh, fabric production, both luxuries and necessities. And so the people who inhabit cities are becoming richer and they're slowly starting to gain power. But that power comes at a cost. Because their gain in power means somebody has to be losing power. And that generally meant that two sorts of people were starting to be threatened. One is the church, uh, one is the aristocracy. And so every time, for instance, if a city gets the right to trade without having to pay a tax, well, where was that tax going? The tax was either going to a local aristocrat or to a local church or both or to a you know, feudal lord, a duke, an aristocrat of some kind. So when you talk about free cities, one, one of the things they were free of was some, not all, of course, external taxation. One of the things that really triggered the Reformation was the fact that local British, primarily aristocrats, but not just aristocrats, were sick of seeing all of, or not all, but much of the money from their people being sucked out of their region by the Catholic Church. So there's a reason certain regions, particularly in Germany, were, were supportive of the Reformation, many reasons, but one of them was, particularly among the elites, was, look, all this tax money is being raised and it's all being gone, going someplace else. We would rather spend it here on our estates or in our cities. And so, you know, who, just as a simple example, just that little bit, I mean, who controls the tax money? If a city gets to vote where the tax money goes, the city is going to vote the tax money goes to the city, more or less. If the duke gets to vote, the duke's going to vote it goes to him. If the church gets to vote, the church is going to get to vote it goes to them. And so those power arrangements were continually under negotiation. But over time, and this is over centuries, the, the cities and the people who occupy the cities gain increasing authority and power because relative to the growth of wealth that's coming out of uh, agriculture, out of owning land, the wealth that grows from trade and from finance, finance, you know, the uh, Medici family is a banking family, the Fugger is a banking family, right? So there, these sorts of traditions are beginning to develop that trade and finance and specialty and technology, all these things have power. 
And that power becomes increasingly important, and so you have to negotiate with it. And those negotiations, again, come at a cost. And so the bourgeoisie slowly over centuries becomes sort of self-aware, um, and, and they become a power to be reckoned with. And so they're, and, and they know that their aristocracy is still above them. Most places in Europe, by the way, the aristocracy functioned under a different set of laws. It varied all over the place, but if you, know, you weren't ruled by the same laws as non-aristocrats. And so um, if, if you were in a city, you wanted to be a citizen of a city because that gave you protection that you did not have when you were other places. And so these sorts of weird, you know, interlocking responsibilities and duties and powers grow and evolve and create a middle class that understand, or a bourgeoisie that understands itself in conflict with an aristocracy, a church, a king, and also never forget you don't want to be a peasant. There's also a downside example, right? I'm not a peasant. I don't work in the fields. I'm not dirty. I'm free. I have some money. I have resources, but I'm not an aristocrat. I might want to be an aristocrat. I might do a lot. I might buy a title. I might marry my daughter off to some broke aristocrat so that I can have my, my grandchildren be entitled, right? All that's going on, but the, but the core of it is they're a new power to be reckoned with, and you can see it all over the place. It sort of throws people out of, of kilter. In the United States, this we just don't have that tradition at all. It's just zero. So, you know, the settlers arrive in the United States, steal all the land from the Indians, kill them, take the stuff. And, but there's no, there's no Catholic church because the Reformation has already happened. Um, there's no nobles per se. There are some nobles who come to the United States, but generally speaking, these were the drunk wastrel sons of drunk wastrel um, you know, noble people who had lost on the English Civil War or something. If you were a, a successful nobleman and you had a going concern in England, you weren't going to say, hey, I think I'm going to up stakes and, and go try a new fortune in the United States. Why would you? You were winning. So we had some lesser nobles around, but they weren't in the context that allowed them to dominate and to just uh, lord it over, quite literally. Um, the, the members of the states that they were coming to. And so, you know, th without that context of the, of the pressures of the church and the authority of the church and the pressures of the aristocracy and authority of the aristocracy, and it's really hard to throw rocks at farmers and peasants when everybody's a farmer and peasant. And it also was this dynamic where a peasant in Europe meant you don't own the land most of the time. In the United States, one of the great draws is you could own land. And because land, even late, was still viewed as the wellspring of all wealth, the true ground of wealth, that was an opportunity that was just mind-blowing. You have to remember that by the time settlers are coming to the United States in large numbers in the 1600s, 1700s, all the land in, all the arable land in Europe had been divided up for, you know, I don't know, what, however long, you know, since the Carthaginians, you know, a thousand years since, you know, who knows? It's just hard to, to, to figure out. You Merovingians, when do you, where do you choose? But, you know, there was not a lot of free land, right? You didn't, you couldn't, to get land, you had to have a major war. In the United States, you just killed a few Indians. They got sick and died of diseases. And it was much easier to steal the land is basically one way to think about it. And so lots of people who had no opportunity to get land all of a sudden could. And so they felt like they were wealthy. So the being a farmer didn't have the same, 
resonance didn't mean peasant. Um, being having a bunch of land was great. Washington Jefferson, of course, you want to have a bunch of land, but they weren't landed aristocrats. They didn't have that same kind of authority. You have someone like Franklin who really was wealthy but didn't have land. You know, it was just a different dynamic, and there isn't the church weighing over all of this, right? There is no um, great ark. There is no estate that is the, the Roman Catholic Church owning vast tracts of land, functioning under total different laws, having its own taxation system. You know, all that doesn't exist. And so as the middle class grows in America, it basically just means people who have some money you know, more or less. I mean, if, if you were a successful farmer, you could be middle class. If you were a successful person in a city, you could be middle class. But if you were poor in a city, you weren't middle class, right? So, I mean, it just, it really had a lot more to do strictly with wealth. And so we just don't have that tradition of the quote-unquote bourgeoisie. And, and why it's important is because so many of the elements and outlooks of um, the the bourgeoisie. I mean, the, the, if you look at someone like oh, Flaubert's Madame Bovary, where he you know he hates the middle classes and their strivings and their apings of of their betters and their complete ignorance and incomprehension. But if you look behind the 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 terrifying and great satire that he wrote, what you see is this self conscious striving, this this desire to create a new world that was sort of the core of this. But it only existed again within the context of these other forces. Without those other forces around, of the aristocracy and the church, and all the land being divided up, and the, you know, it just doesn't make sense, and it functions completely differently. Um, in my own experience, I mean, I don't know how true this is, but it was a while ago. I went to England, and what I realized was in England, more or less. If you were the type of person who could afford to drive a, a very expensive car, like, I don't know, a Jaguar or a Mercedes or a BMW or a Rolls Royce or something, whatever it is, um, then you would not ever drive through a drive through of, like I say, a Taco Bell. N because that you just, it was not done. It would lower your sense of your status identity. Uh, in the United States, I, mean, I know that's sort of a trivial example, but it's sort of that that mindset that we still have to be sort of status conscious. In the United States, it, we just don't seem to care. You know, if you want to go through Taco Bell drive through you, you can drive through in your Porsche or whatever, your BMW. It doesn't matter. That's not what we're about. We're not status conscious in that way. We're status conscious in lots of other ways. But that that sort of fear of 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 those other forces, which are still prevalent, just that because they never existed here, just aren't that prevalent here. And so I think when you think middle class in the United States, we're thinking primarily money, maybe some education, maybe not, but basically it's just, you know, a certain level of comfortable living. And what that is, you know, we can argue about that all day. In Europe, it, the history of it, tradition, of course, much of this is dissolved now, but over the development of it over several centuries, starting, you know, pick a date, say 1200s or 1000, um, was this new force in the world. And one more note on this is this developed very differently in different other parts of the world. Most of world history, um, you know, if you look at China, India, um, you'll see that the merchant is always viewed with suspicion. And the notion of trade, money lending, how all that works, people are always very suspicious of this. And the so 
the formation of an educated but not clearly associated with the crown or the ruling power elite, oh, always tricky. So the, when you have the Confucian exam system in China for, you know, many millennia, for a millennia or more, um, what you're getting there is all the educated people are shooting for working for the emperor. And so you could be sort of a nobleman and you could be of huge power and sophistication relative to your role with the imperial bureaucracy. If you were outside of that control, you might be important, you might make money, but it, the status was very different and always sort of subject to uh, troubling changes. And so the, the dynamic there was very different. And because the to be an educated person meant one thing in Confucian world, uh, you know, there's tended to be more homogeneity. I mean, it's a huge, rich, and varied culture, of course, but the, the imperial bureaucracy was so focused and coordinated and small, very small, given the population and the geographic mass we're talking about, that the dynamics for how they interrelated with their cities that they were managing and the regions they were in was totally different. And so you did have this developed non-official scholar class but they tended not to be merchants and in trade, and the people who tend to be in merchants and trade spent a lot of their money getting their sons, of course, unfortunately, only sons educated so they could rise to the imperial bureaucracy because that was where they thought the real power was. So a completely different dynamic. Uh, India, again, very suspicious of, of merchants. Japan, suspicious of merchants and trade and those in independent educational systems. So the, the bourgeoisie is really more or less um, a, a function of a specific European historical uh, epoch, you know, maybe a thousand years. Um, and it was in the context of the tensions and power relations that it developed. And it really means the rise of that weird city person who has no land, probably, and has some education and does nobody knows exactly what, and somehow they make money. Um, and that outlook and that view that goes along with that is, is what became the bourgeoisie. So thank you. Hopefully that was at least a little bit insightful on that question because I do think it's an excellent question because you'd hear both those terms used even though they are, in fact, theoretically uh, somewhat different. And again, I'll put a link below to the North Indian classical music, something um, I hope people will enjoy. Thank you.